Well, we aren't the first, but we certainly aren't the last. So it's 2016 and I'm standing in my 700 square foot apartment in San Diego when I got a call saying, we'd like to invite you to an interview to be the assistant professor of chemistry at Allen Hancock College. And I was seriously over the moon excited. It was a total dream job and no one really got that opportunity after only one year of teaching experience. But then after that, I get a call from my brother saying, I'm interviewing or at least applying to be an assistant football coach at Allen Hancock College. And we lived in totally different areas of California. And it was kind of surreal. I thought there's no way this could actually happen. He was up in Humboldt. I'm down in San Diego. And we didn't even know that this job was posted for that. We each had a job posted for our disciplines. About a month later, we're both hired and we are moving to Santa Maria. And I, I really thought to myself, there's no way that I would ever leave California unless God dragged me out of the state. About four years go by, my brother had a daughter and a son at that time, and I had two boys, and we did birthday parties together, we bought our first homes, we moved, my brother moved at least a couple times, and it, it really was just I- idyllic. And then March 2020 happened with the worldwide COVID pandemic, and you can I think people have mentioned this enough times to where there's this guttural response, this automatic like, ugh, you know what's going to happen through that. And March 2020 into 2021 into 2022 really revealed a lot to us. And I remember thinking to myself, maybe about six months to a year in, something is not right here. You know, why did the governor shut the beaches? Why are we being told to stay inside? Why are politicians and those in the public sphere applauding, you know, these BLM protests that sometimes turn into rioting and looting, but they're telling churches that they can't meet together, that they're non-essential. And so this was just the beginning of some of my thinking. And I realized that, yeah, viruses are contagious, but ideas are much more contagious. And it's not whether ideas will infiltrate your mind, but which ideas will infiltrate your mind and take hold of them. Not a whether, but which are actually going to do that. So it is kind of like going forward, it was kind of like that episode of I Love Lucy, in which Lucy and Ethel both like the same dress, but they agree that they're not going to buy that dress and not going to wear it. And then they both end up buying it and wearing it. They're really actually like the worst friends to each other, and no one ever (laughs) seems to bring that up. They're terrible friends. Anyway, they end up on stage at the same time wearing the same dress, and they start slowly ripping each other's dresses to shreds, you know, very subtly until it's not subtle anymore. And that really was what happened to my positions on life, work, marriage, government. They all slowly started to be picked apart. And that was really the same time that I had started the Blind Spot podcast because I thought there are a lot of blind spots on a lot of people, including myself. So let's dig into this. So the building, not not the foundation of the building, but the building itself was really torn down and the rebuilding was beginning. And so here we are now. 
uh, we're going to, Phil and I are going to explain to you how this demolition, which was shared kind of by both of us, demolition and subsequent construction caused us to sell our house, leave our loved ones, and move to Georgia. Okay, so why are we moving? You know, I asked, you know, <laughs> I asked, why are we I, moving? I asked you this almost, I don't know, weekly or every two weeks or something yeah. like that. So I got, we had an opening, you know, I had an opening to kind of give some background about how we got here, how we yeah. got to Santa Maria. Yeah. It wasn't a place we ever lived before. Definitely not a place you lived before. A place I kind of grew up coming to the area, you know, mm-hmm. I was kind of familiar with it. So even though we, when we moved here, moving to a new city, it wasn't that new to me. You know, the area was very, I, I, w- I was familiar with it. I was familiar with the smells yeah. and, and the sights and the feel and the weather and all of that. So to me, it was really exciting to move here. So I mean, it was better than where we lived before. It was definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, some there are a lot of, a lot of pros and very few cons versus where we lived before. Right. In San Diego. So how did we decide to move? I mean, where, when did the, the, where did the idea get in its inception? And oh, you've where? asked, you've asked another question. Now you've moved beyond the first <laughs> well, one. No, not beyond. I've moved before, right? Yeah. I mean, where did that okay. even start? Um, so we're moving because we can't stay, right? Okay, because so we, we realize that this is not the right place to be, and the time it was it was going to come to a time when we needed to move. Did and we really think that though? At one time, I realized that before we, before I or we fully decided to move, that this wasn't going to be that it didn't seem like it was going to be the place that when we, we would stay when we first for moved the rest here of our though. Lives. It, in your mind, was it a potential that we could be here for? The I wasn't rest of even. Our lives? I didn't even have that framework of thinking. Of thinking yeah, um, and this is an interesting thought, and maybe we'll get into it a little bit more later. But I think we are, as a people, as a an American people or modern Christian people, really. Maybe it, I'm. I assume that it would extend beyond Americans, but we're divorced from place. To some extent, we have a modern cultural and economic system that doesn't really lend itself to people setting down roots and living in the same place for their entire lives. We're a little bit more itinerant. We move what does around. Itinerant, mean? itinerant means moving around oh, okay. and not not having deep roots. And so we we chase jobs or friendships or other things, and that's why why we move around. In the past, people moved Jobs, a lot because of that. people moved because they literally couldn't survive, or there was no economic mobility or, or opportunity where Which is they why were. You have ghost towns, and stuff yeah, like that. and then okay. yeah, they chased gold out to California in the eighteen forties, fifties, yeah, and they they went up to Alaska after that. There was the there was oil booms throughout the country, and people were, were just moving around. There was the Dust Bowl, so there's there's major political and geographical reasons weather reasons or events historical events why people move around but the for most of history if you were born somewhere it was pretty unlikely that you would you would move and die maybe more than like 50 miles from where you grew up people just stayed where they were Mm -hmm. and there was generation after generation living on or near the same land and 
now we're so divorced from that that it almost seems odd to consider that that's how people lived and However, you know, our, my, I don't my know family I, comes from that type of understanding yeah. though like you move somewhere and you stay there because your family is mm-hmm. in the vicinity and so you don't really think about oh what what are other opportunities yeah. I mean, that's really I think reserved for college mm-hmm. right but the idea is probably yeah that, and that's another thing that feeds into it is that people the education system and society has pushed people to go to four-year universities for higher education rather than pursuing a trade or apprenticeship or starting a business in the town that they grew up in and just staying Mm -hmm. and it's almost you're almost looked at as weird or foolish or less if you stayed in the town that you grew up in and didn't leave to go travel to europe to find yourself or to go to a prestigious four-year university or you didn't take that internship in Washington DC or New York City right so that I don't know that's that's a a little bit of a tangent but but yeah when I mean the reason one of the reasons I asked that is because I don't even I don't think we did have that conversation yeah and I never thought about it honestly um so I, I do remember saying like I said in the intro I remember saying that in order to leave California, it would have to be a call from God. Mm-hmm. And I thought of it more as a call to... A, to a ministry. Partic- a particular ministry. Vocational yeah, ministry, right, yeah. Vocational ministry. And that's definitely not what's going yeah, on Yeah, and when I, when I moved to California, I had a particular calling on my life. My calling was to chase you and marry you. Yeah, right. And... Well, that was successful. God has blessed that tremendously. We have three kids, mm-hmm. three wonderful kids now. Mm-hmm. But I never, if if you had rewound before I met you, California and living in California and everything, never would have entered my mind mm-hmm. that I would live here, work here, start to build a life here. Not that I hated this place or had any antipathy toward it, but just didn't enter my mind that I would ever move or, or live any place other than Florida mm-hmm. if I were living in the States because mm-hmm. Florida is where my family is. It's where I went to school. And so when we, after college, we worked with crew, Campus Crusade overseas. We finished up our terms and came back to the States and you moved back to California and I knew I wanted to marry you. I packed up my car and I drove all the way across the country and then I became a Californian yeah, right. And you didn't seem... I remember actually people asking you, oh, how do you like California? Do you remember when people would do that? No. Yeah. I mean, what, oh, I say, I, like, I what would I say? You'd say, the weather's great. Weather's hate great. The politics. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, still, both still of those true. things are still true, yeah. <laughs> that hasn't changed much. Yeah. But I th- you know, what really I think changed in that is that you saw what how to respond to the political climate differently. I think at the time it was this is the reality the politics mm-hmm. sucked and it affects me through taxes. That you know that might have been that might yeah. be the idea, but not what is the ethos that is infiltrating. Yeah, mind. what is the the culture, the the socio political cultural environment that we're all swimming in? 
here because we know that culture is upstream of politics and so the reason our political environment is the way it is is because our culture has influenced that to be what it is because politicians pander right i mean Mm -hmm. they feed off of what the people around them want to hear and they probably maneuver in some ways maneuver the people in some ways but they really are affected by those who have influenced the culture yeah it really makes me wonder i wish i i knew how did california end up culturally and politically the way it is what are the who are the who are the primary influencers and what are the events and broad trends in history that led us up to this point where california as a whole is very progressive even republicans in california are more progressive yeah than republicans in say like the southeast or or other areas. Yeah, Republicans here are Republican based off um, wanting lower taxes. Um, Maybe wanting to be left alone a little bit more. Probably a little bit more libertarian and wanting guns, probably. Yeah, That's probably because, the two things, taxes and guns. I because if you say, if you say, oh, I'm I'm libertarian, I don't want the, the government or the state to be controlling or directing these things of our lives... That's a lot more socially acceptable than saying no. The law of God said the law of God says that homosexual marriage is no marriage at all. The law of God says this. The law of God says that that mm-hmm. this that you know capital punishment is the appropriate punishment for some sorts of crimes. And yeah, the there needs to be a real trial, real evidence and witnesses. But if someone is a murderer then the state should mete out capital punishment. And, but, but saying, oh, you know, I don't trust the government to, to do that. It's a little bit easier to swallow when you, so when you live in a culture where people are progressive and you take the libertarian tack, you, they're a little you, bit more accepting. Yeah. You have to ask yeah. yourself, am I doing this because I really believe that's the right thing or, or because I know I'm not going to get as much pushback Right. Because personally, I believe in in this kind of politics, but if I actually said that I believe, um, you know, if I actually said that I want I want the government to criminalize parents transitioning their kids through surgery and hormones into you know transgenderism and the opposite gender, like I think that's a criminal and abusive act. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, well, that's kind of, people aren't going to like that. They're going to get on me. But if I just say, oh, you know, I don't want the government doing anything, you know, just let, let people live and let live. It's a different, yeah. it's a different I thing. I have actually a, a concrete, a specific example for that. I was talking to a friend from high school and we were talking about gay marriage, or I should say like apology does gay mirage, right? Gay mirage, yeah. <laughs> gay mirage. So we're talking about that. And this was probably only maybe a year and a half ago. It really wasn't very long ago, but it feels like a lifetime ago because of how much my mind has changed on this. And I said, you know, really, I don't, I was t- t- kind of taking the Ben Shapiro approach. I really don't think that the government should be involved in marriage at all. Just don't say anything mm-hmm. about it. And... We're going to get into, I'm going to ask you some reasons that our minds have changed in the way that Christians should respond to politics and how that should or should not be in the church. Mm -hmm. But I think you 
hit the nail on the head because I think the church has taken up the same way of thinking. Like, how can we respond in such a way that we're a little bit more likable, right? It appeals a little bit more to the culture. I don't think that most people in the church would state it that way. They might state it in a way of, well, the world does not see us as loving, the world, you know, this Pew Research says that most people in America have a bad taste in their mouth when they think of evangelical Christianity. They might say something like that. Mm-hmm. And like, what witness do we have to these people? But really what it is condensed down to is we are using the secular world as a compass for where we should direct ourselves and how should we should re- respond to particular topics. Yeah, we're reacting to the culture rather than building it and directing it in the way that God would have it to go. Okay, so... In accordance with his scripture and his law. So would you agree that um, 2020 and the beginning of the pandemic and how it kind of, kind of, you know, morphed into 2021, that And then into 2022. That really was what precipitated this change in so many of our thought processes. So can you you think of a time... In 2020 to 2021, when you started asking questions mm-hmm. or started watching videos that made you think... Yeah, I mean, let me let me set the scene a little bit. So, we lived in San Diego. I got out of vocational Christian ministry with crew and became an engineer. And you were finishing your master's degree mm-hmm. and working. Then after you finished, you were working as an adjunct professor at different schools, kind of traveling all around. And... I think, well, I wasn't really thinking, so I would have been okay staying there. Say say you had gotten offered a full-time job there. Yeah. We probably would have stayed and we would have tried to figure out where can we live to still go to the same church and I could still go to the same job and we would have... We would have made it work, you know. We maybe like some you would of our have, friends did. Yeah, like maybe you would have had a, a 30 or 40 minute commute to work and I would have had a 40... 50 minute commute to and from work and we would have lived 30, 40, 50 minutes from church and we would have figured out how to make it work. Cause once you're, once you're in something, it's hard to break out and change. And we weren't really thinking about, about place as a really important characteristic of our lives, the direction of our lives, of our, of our purpose, our mission as a family yeah. Right. right. It was just like, well, wherever you happen to be, that's wh- where you are. And and you just kind of live in that reality rather than realizing that as adults and really as, as, as free Americans, as adults, as Christians, we have the ability and sort of the calling to choose where we live. And that is a really important choice because it impacts so many other things it impacts the kind of household that you can build it impacts the family that you're going to have right if you're working full time and I'm working full time and we're each working 30 40 50 minutes away from our house that means we're spending more time away from the home in traffic and when we have kids the only way we can have kids and still work and pay the bills and pay our mortgage is for the kids to be in some kind of daycare or childcare, unless we have family members nearby yeah. who could who could take care, and that's pretty rare. It wouldn't have happened if we had lived in San, San Diego. Diego. Yeah, it didn't happen living here. Okay, side note: Can you please open that window? It is so hot. Okay, if we still um, live in San Diego. <laughs> back back from this commercial break. Um, <laughs> it was hot in here. 
What was it? ExpressVPN. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wish we were sponsored, <laughs> we but no, no sponsorships no, here. No. Um, so, so yeah, I, I had never thought about choosing the place to live and then finding a career. It had always been or a career or life decisions. It had always been that you would find the career or whatever and then you just figure out how to make it work in that geographical place mm-hmm. and so the idea that well what we ended up doing what i ended up doing is looking at okay well what are the geographic areas we would want to live based on our family goals our values uh whether they be political cultural spiritual mm-hmm. and then deciding okay this is the area we're going to target to live it, it was the reverse before. Yeah, we thought of it like find a job mm-hmm. and then let everything else. Yeah, and fall find into a, place. find a, find like the best paying job best that you paying can. Job, yeah. yeah. And I don't even know. well. Anyway, at the time, it was yeah. just based off I went to grad school. So there. we but moved. I want to know. Wait, so, so let me let me finish. Okay, okay. So we moved up here and started our careers, and we really have prospered. So. In what way? Yeah, so so Danae has a, a job through the community college, great insurance and benefits, paying into the, the California teacher's pension system, so there'd be a great retirement out of that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm working for an engineering company, and I didn't hire on. They, I mean, they didn't really know that much about me. I had a good reference coming in and a good connection from a, a somebody that knew my previous boss knew the boss that I work under now and gave me a good reference. Um, but, you know, kind of quickly proved my worth and really started to, to move up and advance to where if we were not leaving, I would be the manager, probably be the manager of the office that I now work in within mm-hmm. the next year. Uh, tremendous opportunity for bonuses if the company does well, as well as I'm a, I was a stockholder in the company. I was able to buy in and, and actually own part of the company. So like a really tremendous opportunity mm-hmm. to continue to work and have great financial stability and even to not, not just stability and scraping by or, you know, living comfortably, but actually I feel like we, we just, yeah, like this last year we really hit, or maybe last two years we hit the spot where I feel like we're wealthy. Yeah, so with, with you know within the next year or so if we were both working full-time here in California, our combined household income would probably be between 200 and 250,000. dollars And you know, just to to give you guys an idea, that's that's a lot of money. <laughs> I don't like think that's a lot of money. I don't think they have to get the idea. I mean, yeah. they probably know. So but that's not I mean, that's not everything. Right. And there's there's just so if you're a Christian or whether I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, you think about making that kind of money as a household. It just opens up a lot of opportunities to, you know, what do you want to do? Oh, do you are you big into traveling? Do you want to live in a really beautifully decorated and comfortable house? Do you want to are you big into restaurants and you like to go and explore and you know, sample all this cuisine, like you can, you can do all that kind of stuff if you have that kind of money. Mm -hmm. But is that why, is that why we exist? Is the chief end of man to glorify ourselves and eat food forever? 
to glor- <laughs> to glorify ourselves and to enjoy our own Ethnic wealth food. and prosperity. No, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Whether you make minimum wage or or you're wealthy, you're far wealthier than we would have been. So so anyway, that's remember yeah. my, que- my So what's your question was, again? <laughs> my question was do you remember a time or a topic, a video, something that first okay. started triggering so questions? How did we get to the point? How did we get to the point as a couple and then me specifically? This is you specifically. Uh, as yeah. head of the household to, to thinking about these kind of things. So what led me into thinking about it was trying to understand the progressive progressive christianity woke christianity christianity mm-hmm. that's very engaged in in establishing social justice and so i i sort of went down a rabbit hole of listening to different youtubers and Name so. podcasters about it so i was listening to john harris he has a podca- podcast called conversations that matter um i was listening to Michael O'Fallon, his mm-hmm. his uh, ministry organization is called Sovereign Nations, and he did a conference, and he had some speakers there at the conference, the first conference, and that included Jordan Peterson, James Lindsay, um, Josh Bice. Uh, he spoke himself, and, and there were maybe one or two others, and so I listened to what they were saying, and I, th- I would... I think I would credit Michael O'Fallon and Sovereign Nations. In some ways, I started listening to his podcast. So he had a podcast um, that was, I don't know, there would be an episode maybe a couple times a month or something. Very well produced. And it was called The Causes of Things. And so he's looking at, in this podcast, he's looking at what's going on in our society and politics around us. And where is the needle moving? Where where are we headed based on what the the cultural and political elites are doing? And he was he was really warning. He was warning about what's going to happen. And then the pandemic hits. Oh, you started listening to him beforehand. I did. Yeah, I was I was trying to understand what oh. Christianity and stuff before that, but, the pandemic. Okay. But so so then the pandemic hits, and we start to. It's, it was apocalyptic. And so what apocalyptic means is an unveiling. It's not necessarily um, the world is you know, mysterious or the world is ending or spiritual. But it's the revealing of what's going on. So the, the pandemic revealed what was already going on around us. What the elites, the direction the elites were pulling society and culture and politics. But it just, it, it, it forced them... Or maybe gave them an opportunity. You could probably both both those things are true to reveal their hand and what they wanted. And so, if you look at people in Sacramento, California, our capital, or Washington D.C., or people who are involved in world governmental organizations, World Economic Forum, the UN, things like that, the the people who have those positions of authority want power. They want to consolidate power. They want to actually be able to do stuff. And if you think about our political system in the United States, it's really not set up for politicians to be able to do stuff unless they have 
a huge consensus and and popular support around them. Mm-hmm. So our our country is basically divided 50-50 Republican and Democrat. Yeah, they're independent people and they kind of sway the elections one way or, or the other, but our our populace is split very evenly. If you look at the popular vote for presidential elections going back, you know, 40 years and it's almost always very even like very close to 50 50 votes it's very rare you'd get a landslide election that gives a president a real mandate to implement his policies versus who his competition was in the election and so the system with checks and balances with the house and the senate and and the original intent behind it with the electoral colleges really meant to prohibit a bare majority of people from exercising their political will onto the rest of the population. It's, it's meant to, our rights are enshrined in the constitution and they're protected. And the, the whole mechanism of our system is, is meant to keep those people from being oppressed if you can just get 51% of people to agree on something that they can do whatever they want. To the 49 so so anyway i start so, so our political class and cultural class they want to exercise power and influence in such a way like hey they're they're the majority they have power within their sphere and they want to exercise that over the rest of us and the political system stands in their way as it is but then a pandemic happens and you get to put aside the normal rules of doing things you get to put aside the normal rules of elections and mail give everybody mail in ballots because it's unsafe to come to the polls. You get to say, oh, these businesses are essential and these businesses are not essential. You you as the government get to mandate or for all intents and purposes mandate a specific medical treatment for people. They're able to allocate money from the budget to give people stipends and um, what did they call it? What's the COVID money called? What do they call it? Stimulus, stimulus money. Um, So, and and, you know, whoever holds the purse strings has the power in in some aspects. So, so what it revealed to, to me in that sense is that there are powerful elite people that run in elite circles that have a specific vision for our country, for our politics, for our culture, for our lives, for the way that economics works, and that they're trying to reset everything by means of this pandemic to be more in line with their vision. So what's the right response then? Because i we have talked in other episodes about like what is actually happening and mm-hmm. the reasons for it happening. So that's more of like the sovereign nations approach causes of things, right? Yeah. But I'm looking more at the who's the guy Joel Webin. Okay, right response. Yeah. How did you ascertain what the right response to that? Focus more on that. Yeah. So as a result of that, I started to get more. So I, I was I was trying to understand the spiritual reality of. Mm-hmm. Why are people who I know who are Christians or who claim to be Christians um, partnering with a, a leftist progressive political 
ideology that I didn't agree with. Mm-hmm. Or am I missing something in terms of how I'm reading and understanding the scripture or are they? Because we can't both be right. There's one transcendent law of God. There's one book that contains God's truth and that's the Bible. And so we should be able to both look at it and then come to the same conclusion about what political policies and and things that we support and what we oppose. Um, but I wasn't I, w- I wasn't seeing that kind of agreement. So I went from there and and then started to realize, oh, there's there are political things at play here that I didn't I didn't see before that I'm not really engaged with. And and I had been listening to conservative political commentary for a long time. But then I started listening to it, not from a secular libertarian perspective, but from Christians, Christians who are highly engaged in politics as a as a means of filling out what God as fulfilling what God has called us to do. Um, So at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, all authority is on heaven and earth is given to me. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So undergirding all of that is the reality that Christ is king, that he is ruling over all and that he has real authority. And then that we as Christians are called to disciple the nations, to make disciples of the nations. And then we teach them to obey, right? It's not just our job to preach the gospel that Jesus died on the cross he paid for our sins he rose again from the dead and he conquered sin and death and if we trust in him that our sins will be forgiven that's true that's the foundation but what are we building on top of that what we're what we're building is a world that falls under the dominion of christ under his authority where everyone bows the knee to christ because he has authority he has real authority and and so i had i had been very guilty of pursuing this softer more palatable libertarian political um political standpoint where like well you know this is what i believe but is it really right to vote in such a way that i would force other people to live in this way and i would have said no in the past but now i say yes but it's not not because it's the way I live or I want to live, but it's because of the way Christ has commanded us to live. And, and it so, would be for the flourishing of all yeah, people. Yeah, and it, it does. The, living in accordance with the law of God brings prosperity and flourishing and joy. And disobedience leads to death and decay and destruction. And it, it doesn't necessarily happen overnight, but... Any disobedience to God will ultimately end in sadness and destruction. Temptation gives birth to sin, and then when sin is fully formed, it gives, gives death. death. Yeah. yeah. So death. the the reality is, if you look at California politics or the, or the politics of the United States, you see many laws and policies, cultural philosophies, what you see in the ethos of our music and our Hollywood entertainment, music, uh, movies, television shows, things like that, you see values, policies, idols that will ultimately lead to destruction and death. 
And as Christians, we have the answer to it. And the answer is to preach the gospel and to call people to obey God and his law. Mm -hmm. To bring everything about their lives, their language, their their thoughts, their behaviors into conformance with his will. And so I started to get a little bit more politically active in the sense that we were really trying to read when, when we would vote, we'd get the voter guide, we'd go to candidate websites, we'd watch YouTube videos and debates from our president, from the presidential candidates all the way down to county commissioner, to the state house and Senate senators um, for our, for our district and trying to vote in accordance with people that are going to govern based on godly principles. And then I also started to call to do phone calls. And this is much more recent, maybe within the last six months where I finally was like, you know, I got to call these people. I got to call our, our state assemblymen. I have to call our, our state Senator. I have to call our Congressman. And I have to tell them, you know, what I believe. I have to tell them that they're going to have to give an account before God one day for the way that they vote. And if they vote for policies and laws that are antithetical to righteousness, then they will be judged for that. And they don't get to stand behind or hide behind Oh well, my constituents wanted me to do this way. Like if you're yeah. a statesman, if you're a politician, you're a magistrate. Yeah, you have the duty because your authority comes from God. You're elected by the people, but all authority is from God because Jesus said, "All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me." So the authority that I have as a husband and a father, the authority that uh, Joe Biden has as the president of the United States, the authority that Congressman Salud Carbajal of our district in California has. It comes from God, and we will have to give an account to God for what we do. Um, so that that's what I was doing. And, you know, obviously, it, well, not obviously, but um, I can tell you that it's not well received. The people that are on the phone are just, they're kind of being polite and listening, and maybe they're jotting down notes, or maybe they're no. mouthing to somebody next to them in the booth, like, oh, I have this, person. I got this crazy Christian moron on the phone talking to me about this. But, you know whatever they can do with it what they want but that's my that's my level of responsibility responsibility is on us results are god's that's the pattern yeah so 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 what i and then in doing that what i realized is and then looking at the political reality some of the laws that have passed recently in california the the laws that are on the on the books that are being debated that are in committee um and looking at who has power uh, for those who aren't in California, you may not know, we have the power in California through ballot initiatives to recall politicians. And so there is a petition that circulated during COVID that got enough signatures to uh, to ask the voters, to put it on the ballot, to ask the voters if we want to recall our governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, because we don't think he's been doing a good job and to elect somebody else in his place if he's recalled. So it was a tremendous effort by conservative or anti-Newsom activists to collect the signatures, to submit and get, we, we voted, the, the state of California voted on whether to keep Gavin Newsom or to have somebody else finish the rest of his gubernatorial term. And the, the campaign, 
or the the anti-recall or whatever it was all if you watch the news if you're in california you're watching youtube or whatever and you saw ads it was very much based on fear oh if you recall gavin newsom then you have this anti-science candidate yeah anti-science they're gonna repeal all of the covid stuff that and he likes trump that really scared yeah So it, it, what ended up happening was an overwhelming, I think it was like 60-40 voting to keep Gavin Newsom in office. Like it wasn't even close. Um, and what I, I what I really think is, is that there are a lot of Californians who didn't think deeply about what was going on. They didn't think deeply about what it means to give the government powers during a quote-unquote emergency or pandemic that they wouldn't normally Which he still have. Holds. Yeah, and we saw Danae and I saw a uh, an excerpt from a transcript where Newsom was being deposed, and he was being asked because he's under a lawsuit for the way that the uh, way that he's used powers during the COVID pandemic, and he was being asked, kind of by what standard did you decide that we're in a state of emergency in the pandemic? how would you know when the emergency is over and you can return to normal governance? And his answers to those questions were, I declined to answer. Basically like, oh, I'm not going to answer so I don't incriminate myself. Because if if he had answered, he wouldn't have had an answer that conformed to California's laws about what what is defined legally as an emergency where the government can exert extraordinary powers and control things that it doesn't normally have the right to control. And so he took power where our our governing documents say he was not allowed to have power and the people allowed him to do that and they they didn't recall him when they had the chance. So looking at that and some of the other uh, political realities, what our state believes in terms of um, abortion, education, homosexuality, transgenderism, things like that. The, Even the healthcare. Healthcare, yeah. It just, it was clear that this is not, that in the in the short term, say the, the next five to, to 10, 15 years, the formative years of our kids' childhood, that California is, is not going to go in a different direction. So at that point, you have to start thinking, well, we can stay here. And try to get more politically active. We can try to influence the politicians that represent us to to promote policies more in conformance with with God's character, God's revealed character and His law. Or we can geographically relocate to a place that aligns more with our values. Um, so you have the prospect of raising your kids in an environment where you're swimming in a sea of of culture and politics and society that you constantly have to fight against to protect your kids, to warn your kids, um, or you can move somewhere where it's not as, there's nowhere where you can live where it's not a battle, but you can move to a place where the fighting isn't quite as hot or where there's a little bit more hope than there is here. So there's a, there is a different, I'm going to jump in here. So, there is a difference between sending your kids out at 15 and 16 
right? Maybe even to, I, I can at least hear the argument of sending them out to public schools, 15 and 16, and using that argument as, well, we want to be missional. Mm-hmm. I can I can listen to that. But when I hear a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old being put into public schools, or I am I'm going to go to a really dark place so we can be missional, that seems incredibly foolish. Especially since your main priority is to raise your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, so that then they will go and do the yeah. same. And whoever teaches your kids, it disciples your kids. So if you are sending your kids into an environment, even to the local library to be taught or read uh, particular material, certain books, you are um, you are putting them under the leadership uh, that is there at that local library, at that school, at that um, play group, whatever it is. Yeah. And you are teaching your kids to submit to that authority. You are, um, especially given the amount of time that kids are, let's say, in public school and they are learning from a public school teacher who is precluded by law to say anything about God or religion or about faith under the false assumption that that is neutral. So there, there's a big difference between if you are a person in California that has older kids and they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to stay here and we're going to stick to it and we're going to do everything we can to yeah. fight against it versus, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to use my kids as my arms and feet missionaries to go out and to win the culture. You, we first have to win really, in a sense, win them. Like we have to teach them, train them. Correct. So I had asked you. Well, let me, let me jump in here for a second and expound on that. So I, I talked about the great commission where Jesus says, you know, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me, make disciples, teach them. So the, the primary way that the mission that Jesus has given us and the same as the mandate that Adam and Eve are given in Genesis two to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. The primary way that we accomplish that is through our children, through our offspring. And tangentially, in terms of the Bible and and ministering um, with the gospel, we do share the gospel and proclaim it with strangers, with friends and family that are not our children. And we hope to see them converted through the power of the Holy Spirit to trust Christ and to live then under Christ's authority as, as Christians. But primarily the, the reason why there's over a billion people who claim the name of Christ, it's because Christians have had children and raised them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so that was a little bit of a shift in our thinking not so much after we'd had one or two kids, but I think really after we had Camille or, or maybe while you were pregnant with Camille and maybe it was just me, I don't know, but I started thinking uh, more deeply about what responsibility that God has given to me in terms of fulfilling the great commission, not external to our family, but within our family, within our kids, how to disciple our kids to to not just say, oh, we're a family where mom and dad happen to be Christians, but we are a Christian family. Okay, so this is where we go back to 2020 again. So we, I think everybody knows that 2016 was kind of leading up to 2020 in a lot of ways. 
because there is a lot of divide over then-candidate Donald Trump, and it started a lot of really heated conversations, but I think that's where we kind of fell back into the more libertarian mindset of like, oh, we don't really have a strong opinion. We think, yeah, Trump has some crude words, and he's not very kind. We like some of his policies, but we're not... But he's not Hillary Clinton. Yeah, but we didn't have... We kind of chose the middle ground because it was more palatable in a yeah. lot of ways. Not that doesn't. I'm not saying who we would have voted for one way or the other, but I actually I now I know who I did vote for, and it wasn't either of them. But anyway, so I think I felt better about taking the middle ground. Every time you do that, it like makes a really loud noise. Just saying. <laughs> okay, so uh, it felt better taking the middle ground because. It was, again, more palatable to the culture. It made people maybe, it made us seem like we were more respectable people because we said, well, we just didn't vote for anyone. It's like being Switzerland, you know, like, oh, we didn't get involved or neutral. And then later, obviously, we have found out that neutrality is really a myth. But I want to kind of go through my thought process. This partially, yes, is for the podcast, but also it's very cathartic for me to look back. The whole process of deciding to move, as you know, has been really difficult for me. Much more emotionally difficult for me than for Phil, not just because of our personalities, not because he has not been sad about particular things, but that is just the way I'm more geared. And so going back and thinking through everything and seeing how God worked is really helpful for me too, to see where I was blind and where God was faithful. So it's kind of like me uncovering some Ebenezer stones along the way. Mm-hmm. So March, 2020, I remember my par- when, when Newsom had declared a stay-at-home orders. I think it was a 15-day order. I can't really remember. But my parents were going to come over that weekend. And shout out to my sister, Tori. <laughs> I remember her saying, that, that is not okay. We need... To... <laughs> She's going to laugh at me for saying this. But she said, that's not okay. We need to submit to the governing authorities. And anyone that knows Tori would kind of laugh <laughs> at her saying that. <laughs> but at the time, we said, okay. You know, my parents acquiesced. And they said, okay, we're not... We, we won't go. And I remember making my neighbor's masks and talking to my mom about, you don't have a mask, you need to get a mask, it's for other people, etc. So again, that shows you, if you've listened to any of my recent stuff, how much that shift, mm. um, how, how, how many degrees I shifted. So I had forgotten that you actually made, you got out the sewing machine. And, and you I was made, making masks yeah. for people. Yeah. Yep. And so anyway, going, I remember listening to some commentary saying, oh my gosh, is this going to go into summer? What in the world? You know, no one can stay inside for that long. Little did we know it was going to happen. But anyway, I didn't think much about it. I didn't think really into it very much. I didn't think through it, even through a spiritual lens. I just thought, oh, okay, you do this to love people. That's what I'll do. Then George Floyd happens, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that was a huge, well, I know it was a huge explosion metaphorically and literally, but the response to that, I think really started to wake me up. I was listening to, at the time, the Just Thinking podcast, and they were analyzing these events. And so I remember one thing that Virgil Walker said was, and actually it didn't have to do with the George Floyd case, but it had to do with abortion. For some reason, this started to wake me up a little bit. I had always identified as a pro-life person, and he said he identified as an abortion abolitionist. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder what that means. I heard him explain it. 
And I thought, I think I'm kind of an abortion abolitionist, but I have been told by a lot of pro-life people, it's not really necessary or helpful to have these pictures of, you know, aborted babies or to tell, to say something like abortion is murder. It doesn't really, you know, win people over. And that's kind of our mindset. You know, what was going to win people over? What was, in our estimation, efficacious? And I then was also, I don't know the exact timeline, but Apologia was something I watched and listened uh, to a lot. I was always really interested in Mormon apologetics, and Apologia is huge in engaging with Mormons and Jehovah's Witness apologetics too. But the way they engaged and the way that they debated was very intriguing and uncomfortable at the same time. And I remember telling you, Jeff White and some other people, I think it was Cy Bruggenkate. I don't I don't really know how. James to... White huh? or Jeff Durbin? What did I say? You said Jeff White. Okay. Combine yeah, them. Yeah, they are two separate people. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, we love them both, though. Je- uh, well, Jeff Durbin and James yeah. White, and then Cy Bruggenkate. Oh, I, I don't think actually James White was in this debate, but anyway, there was a debate, and I I remember the debate made me really uncomfortable with how I guess straightforward they were in the debate. They weren't really giving any ground to the other side, and. I think I told you that, like, oh, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, you know, mm. and I don't really, and then, but I stepped back and I thought, why is it rubbing me the wrong way? Is it rubbing me the wrong way because what they did was wrong? Or is it because I'm so detached from the real, um, the, the way that God wants me to operate that I am, I'm, I'm almost like a little allergic to the biblical, uh, directive and mm. how to engage, um, non-believers. And so that thought kind of ruminated. That's a real word, right? Ruminated. Oh, yeah. Ruminated. <laughs> I learned a lot of words when I'm... You ruminated on that thought. Yeah, I ruminated on that thought a lot. And, you know, that kind of sat there. I didn't necessarily come to a conclusion. But then we started talking about... The, the, the huge discussion, I think, in our circles was politics. You know, not just politics, but politics and eschatology. And those two things together really changed the way that you think. So in terms of politics we started to listen or in worldview analysis we started to listen what were well, you I was going to say in terms of politics probably the easiest way to describe what we would have said before is that we wanted political freedom to practice our religion right the way that we wanted but we didn't want to take our religious truths and Impose bring them. them into the political sphere it was seen as an imposition yeah like but we didn't have a principle that led us to that application. It yeah. was it was more of a secular conservative thought that led us to yeah, that. Exactly. So for instance, we would have voted in accordance with the idea that abortion is murder and murder is bad, but we wouldn't have quite had the full connection between that and the sixth of the 10 the sixth of the 10 commandments that says thou shalt not kill it being a violation of God's law, just just like, oh, it's bad. It's yeah. murder. Or, and it's and a baby. So, and it's a baby. Babies? Like, why would you kill babies? Yes. Um, and even in that, one of the big debates in the pro-life um, or pro-life versus the abortion, the true abortion abolitionists is what do you do with the mother who goes out to seek an abortion is is that criminal so if abortion is murder 
if it's the unjustified taking of a human life, then the abortionist that performs the act is committing murder, but the woman who goes out and seeks that procedure, seeks to, to get an abortion, seeks to kill her unborn child that she should be protecting and cherishing, that that is actually a criminal as well, right? If someone goes to hire a hitman, they're an accessory to murder. If, you, if you're not the one that carries out the act, but you're involved in the planning and making sure that the act of murder happens, then you hold legal and moral responsibility for it. And so that's a big divide because the traditional big, well, you could say big pro-life that's collecting lots of money and doing um, marches marches and things like that, they opposed legislation in Louisiana that would have criminalized abortion not only by the provider, but also by the woman. So a woman seeking an abortion... This has been opposed all over. Yeah, would have been subject to criminal penalties. And and so what happened was these these pro-life organizations actually leaned on conservative legislators to not vote for this bill that would have provided protection for unborn humans... The same way that we provide protection for born humans. Mm -hmm. So it was equal weights and measures. And so they they opposed it because it's unpalatable to say that a woman who is seeking an abortion is doing something criminal or wrong. You know, it's, oh, she's only the victim. So Donald Trump had said at one point when he was asked... As a, you, as a candidate, yeah. Was it as a candidate? Uh-huh. Would you seek criminal... Would, would a, Should a woman be criminally liable if she seeks an abortion? He said yes, and then he got... A lot of blowback. up. Yeah. And up he, and down. He, double, he, um, he took that back. Yeah, backtracked. So I remember listening to Ben Shapiro about this, and it was one of those moments that you're listening to a story and you're like, oh, what that guy said was right. And then the commentator is like, no one in the pro-life industry thinks that. And I'm like, oh, I guess I'm wrong, but I don't really know why. And so you're- And I remember hearing that too. Do you? Yeah. And thinking, oh yeah, that's like political. Like, Well, what what I remember is Shapiro's analysis of it is Trump isn't really pro-life he's not really conservative he's kind of playing into that so he's, he you know trump's know. trump's like a classic new york liberal more economically conservative probably but not socially conservative and so he was he was logically trying to think through what it means to be yeah. pro-life <laughs> right and that's the conclusion he came to it's like oh yeah then the abortionist is a criminal and so is the woman that's seeking all it because it's murder have called it they murder, call it murder so. <laughs> and so he's like oh yeah and and then oh, you know you you imagine like his aide whispering in his ear like oh yeah no 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 the woman is the woman's only the victim and so he backtracks on it and and yeah i remember hearing shapiro saying that the same thing what did right? you that, think I didn't, I honestly, I don't remember thinking too much deeply like, oh yeah, he's probably, well, I knew that he was right in the sense that I had never, to that point at least, in 2016, heard anyone seriously talk about criminalizing abortion from the mother's side. Yeah. I had never heard about it, you know, and I've been pro-life, I've 
that's been a big reason for why I vote the way that I vote. It's been something that we've donated money towards for a number of years. And so I, I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, oh, yeah, I've never heard anyone talk that way. So, yeah, yeah it makes sense that he would backtrack what he said. He was just not really thinking or, or didn't know the pro-life movement or issues well. And so yeah. he spoke more aggressive. And Trump's an aggressive and... He's an aggressive person, yeah. right? Um, so, so. I, yeah, I remember thinking, oh, I guess I was wrong, but I don't really know why. But you don't really want to ask because you're embarrassed by the way you thought. You know, when you say a wrong answer, like a lot of reasons why students don't answer a question in class is because they don't want to be wrong and then they feel stupid about it. So that's kind of what I was is imbibing. Can I use the word imbibing? Yeah, it's like the, was... the ethos that you were imbibing. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's what was in my gut. And so I remember Apologia talking about how do we think as a Christian? How do we think as a Christian? I was like, yeah, how do I? And I had some other people that were a little bit more center and left. I know probably center leaning that would use that phrase a lot. And it did help me kind of reconsider some of my positions. Although I didn't end up with the same conclusions they did because I think that they um, missed some other arguments along the way. One one thing that I think a lot of center-leaning people have missed is the the real role of government, the biblical role of government, yeah. which we'll get to in a second. But I it helped me think through, like, how do I think as a Christian? Well, the way that I think as a Christian is through the scriptures. Okay, how do I understand the scriptures? Okay, so I have to understand them in their totality. And um, then, okay, I we get introduced to people like Doug Wilson and can't, everyone at Christ Church and and uh, can impress reading their materials. And I think it was the beginning of 2021 where we really started thinking about what the government's role to tell us, particularly about the mask thing. But you you started getting material on the the doctrine of the lesser magistrate and explaining from that what does the Constitution, our binding document, our binding political document, say that the role of government is and what rights do they have to impose on the people? Because the rights really, from the constitutional standpoint, belong to the people and the government cannot infringe upon those rights, right? There's a limited purview that they have to actually act. But over, you know, 100, 200... 200 plus years that has changed in such a way that they have expanded and their I guess the government has tried as much as they can to expand their purview and what they can do to the people. And it's kind of seen that that's why you have people looking to politicians to solve problems. That's why you have people when politicians get up, they're like, why, you know, there's this many people without health insurance. And the assumption is, oh, because politicians have been doing their job Mm -hmm. so there's the wrong question is being asked right so now all of a sudden we're going to start doing our job that we haven't been doing for the last 100 years and we're going to finally fix this problem like maybe it's not a political problem so i want to name a couple of things that we read and listened to that have changed so i I just want to say that a couple of things that I've been reading recently or I've read and, and am reading right now. One uh, that I'm reading right now is Ruler of Kings by Joe Boot. And he gives kind of a background of how sec- a lot of secular humanist thoughts and I guess technocratic thoughts 
have led us to the point that we are now and how the Christian is supposed to respond to these competing worldviews. Mm-hmm. And so that's one in it, uh, how Christ is king over all things. He is the king of kings, is the Lord of lords. So there is a president of presidents, right? Our president isn't supreme. Our government isn't supreme. He is the government of governments. He is the the president of presidents. He's over all of that sphere. So how to think about that correctly. And the one that I just finished was, oh, Slang Leviathan by Glenn S. Sunshine. And he talks about the, the history of Protestantism and its relationship with government, how the early reformers thought about our role in government, and how that really has developed over time to understand the scriptures, how how we're supposed to understand even the difference between um, how God dealt with Israel and um, and Hebrew law, and how the New Testament, the New Covenant, covenant understands. The role of government now. The role of government now is to uphold righteousness and to punish unrighteousness, right? So that was a huge shift for me. And what before you get into your material, the second thing that really shifted how we were to respond to 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 where we are, where we're living, and how we're interacting with politics is. Uh, is eschatology are are things going to be getting worse and worse and worse and so we should really pray for the coming of christ throw our hands up you know uh politics politics is temporal christ is eternal so really the only thing that we need to focus on is the church itself and Mm -hmm. just wait for the return of christ or are we going to build something you know because if you think that tomorrow we're going to die why do you build a tree if you're going to think tomorrow everything's going to go to ruins why build a house so that really made us think differently about the future how what are we Mm -hmm. thinking about you had told me one time what what are we going to be thinking about our kids 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 like they want some memory of us i don't remember the year the span that you gave yeah. me like 200 and something years was going to be our influence like how long our influence mm-hmm. was going to last um in our progeny but anyway that was it that because christians even around me were saying gosh the church needs to get out of politics they just don't need to talk about these things it really made me reconsider well why you know, this is Christ really the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And if so, we are going to be taught by somebody how to think about politics. Why am I going to learn about that outside of God's people? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't I be learning about it from God's people? Okay, yeah. what are some of the things that you had? Um, so a, a big, uh, pro- probably the first book that I read to that was where I was thinking more about politics from a Christian perspective was the doctrine of the lesser magistrates by Matt Truella. So I heard him interviewed by John Harris on the conversations that matter podcast. And then I went and, and bought the book and I read that. And so what he's advocating in that book for is that if there is, if there are, are laws or policies in the government that violate God's law or what we know to be, right that we have a duty to resist and that those with authority as lower ranking magistrates have the authority to have the authority and responsibility before God to defy unjust or unlawful rules and to interpose between the people they represent and the higher ranking magistrates and sometimes that resistance 
is enough to to change things for the better and sometimes they may have to sacrifice tremendously they may have to even actively resist um and it's it's not as if that is is far-fetched the well in california we have been resisting federal laws about marijuana for a long time there are other states like Oklahoma, which basically just passed passed a complete a ban on abortion, they're resisting the federal government's decision, uh, the Supreme Court Roe v. Wade decision, because they've in California, the political the prevailing political philosophy is that we can do what we want with our bodies in terms of marijuana usage, and it doesn't matter if the federal government says it's illegal, we'll do what we want and we won't cooperate or cooperate in terms of immigration um so the state isn't cooperating with ice Mm -hmm. to deport people so we're more of a sanctuary for um for people who have entered the country illegally uh whereas oklahoma is saying well the we know that what is being killed in the what is being aborted in the womb is a human it's a human with with value that is deserving of equal protection under the law and so it doesn't matter that the supreme court says that you you can or that, that we're not allowed to restrict abortion within the first trimester we're going to do it anyway um and it's the same thing that was going on in in the north before the civil war where the the northern states were not enforcing federal law the federal fugitive slave act so they were interposing on behalf of of black americans and not returning them to their masters in the South in in defiance of federal law. And then the Southern states didn't want to be a part of a union where the law wasn't being in, enforced. And so they seceded. So there, there's a long history in our country of, of people and states and governing officials defying authority. But more recently, in terms of what we would want to defy as Christians... Because it doesn't, uh, doesn't you know, policies or, or laws that don't match with God's law, with what we know to be true, we're just way more hesitant to, to actually do anything about it. We'll vote, we'll complain, maybe we'll protest, but we won't actually do anything about it. So he's calling, Matt Truella is calling us to action in that. And action a lot of times looks like resistance. Yeah. Where he's yeah, it doesn't not look like to... taking, it doesn't look like, taking guns and going into an abortion clinic and shooting it it looks like you know defending those who aren't defended yeah it it looks like maybe you're a christian and so you run for city council or planning commission or something and the next time planned parenthood wants to expand or or come into your community you deny them the permit even though they would be legally allowed to do it but you just say no we're not going to let you here because you're baby murderers Right. right. You're not going to go in and kill those people. Right. Because that's not your authority, but you will resist them coming into your community and setting up shop. Yeah. In Romans 13, the government is the one, the king yield, wields the sword, right? Yeah. We don't wield the yeah. sword. The civil government is God's avenger to administer justice. It is not individual Christians mm-hmm. who are exercising God's judgment um, to, to people. And that's, that was another thing that from, I don't, I don't, I don't think it was necessarily from the book, although it may have been. So 
Romans 13 talks about submitting to the governing authorities. And so I had always understood that to be the people mm-hmm. who are yeah. who are governing us. Our, our governor, our president, our congressman, you know, that, that kind of thing. But the United States is a constitutional republic. Uh, it, it's a democratic constitutional republic. So we are governed under a document that is the constitution, and that is the highest authority. It is the constitution. It, it is to the constitution that presidents are sworn in, that military and police officers are sworn. They swear to defend the constitution. They don't swear uh, uh, to defend the president. To of defend, the yeah, States. to defend and obey the president. They are going to obey the constitution. Same thing with state. If you work for the state, like I did you sign that you're going to defend the state constitution. Oh, I didn't know that. I I didn't know you signed that. I did. Mm -hmm. I wonder if our constitution's any good here. Yeah, I didn't read it (laughs) (laughs) before I signed. Yeah. That was a problem. Yeah. So so what what happened and the reason why we felt, or, or not felt, the reason why we decided to defy some of the government orders and policies during COVID was because we reasoned through it. We looked at the United States Constitution, the supreme authority with our civil government, and we realized that what the president, what President Biden and Trump and those administrations, what Newsom and his administration were doing, the way they were exercising power was unconstitutional. Right. And so... They when, were the one in yeah. disobedience, not submitting. So to the we were authority. we were obeying Romans thirteen by looking at the Constitution, the governing authority, and obeying it. And they were the ones who were not submitting to the governing authority by taking power that didn't that wasn't assigned to them right. by our Constitution. Right. So that was that was really important for me. A few other um, people that I listened to, I'd mentioned John Harris before. He's not super political. I mentioned Michael O'Fallon, Sovereign Nations, and then A.D. Robles. Um, you love has, him. As a YouTuber. Because um, <laughs> he's really funny. Yeah, he's he's hilarious. Highly recommend. <laughs> Great. He's, he's sarcastic. Um, yeah. And then starting to listen to some of the stuff out of Apologia Church in Arizona, Christ Church, Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho. And then... Um, some other people affiliated with like the Fight Laugh Feast network. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what really started to concern me in what it would look like moving forward in California was a I was employed full time, mm-hmm. so we had the boys at a preschool, and Camille obviously isn't anywhere, but I w- I was finding you know babysitters for her. It was getting obviously really complicated. Yeah. To do both working full time and really, I mean, I was home more, much more than you were. I was home through, well, five out of the seven days of the week, working two nights a week and two days of the week. Mm-hmm. And a, I think people miss out on this part that it's not necessarily can you physically fit in those things. It's that you don't have the capacity to do all those things well, number one. I wasn't feeding my family well. I wasn't interacting with my kids well because I was on so low, I was such low energy. I just didn't have the ability 
to think, to focus on one thing because I was trying to prepare for getting to work and the kids, you know, maybe weren't sleeping, they weren't taking a nap, so I was frustrated with them. There was all this transition. They're like, who's coming over to watch us? Are we going to preschool today? What are we doing? It, it became so much that I realized that I was neglecting both places that I, that I was involved mm. in both at school and at at home but my primary role what my primary concern was was what was going on at home and in addition to that I wasn't able to serve other people who had needs especially at church so when you had like a meal train come up it was like oh, okay yeah, yeah yeah I'll hop on it and I'll just like I'll pick I'll pick some food up and really was that extending hospitality to people was that thinking in advance was that giving them a healthy home-cooked meal yeah no it was doing what I could to kind of check the box but not doing things in excellence and doing things to the best of my ability so and so we realized as a value that we really wanted you to be able to stay home and not to work oh which yeah for the most part because I'm still thinking about teaching a couple yeah to not no the to not have to work right right yeah so living in California with the economic burden, cost of living, things like that, it we would be very technically could. We could, but... yeah. Maybe this, maybe this year would finally be the first year where I would make enough money, yeah, and where you could not work. But mm-hmm. up until now, it wouldn't have, it probably wouldn't have worked. Yeah, but in addition to that, we were looking forward to kindergarten, and so we were starting to think the educational route. Yeah, like, like, what like are we oh, okay, because we had always assumed we'd. We'd send our kids. Well, I I kind of assumed. Yeah, we'd check it public out and make school. sure public school. Yeah, and as long as we check it out and the teachers aren't like totally crazy, right? We just send them to public school. And, and that then shifted to charter, which is public. I understand that charter is public, but it is underneath a specific charter and not within a school district. Yeah. Because so it's run a little bit differently, but they still cannot teach spiritual truths. Yeah. And so obviously that was an issue to us. If you're going to be there for that long, we we kind of latched on and believe in the idea that actually we know, I would actually yeah. say we know instead of believe, that since God created all things, all areas of discipline, all parts of life, that to instruct a child otherwise is to teach a couple things. One, that you don't need God to know anything, but we know from Proverbs that the, the fear, fear of the Lord, Lord is, is the beginning, beginning of, of knowledge wisdom. and wisdom. Both of those. And the are, knowledge yeah, of the holy the understanding. Yes. Yeah. And so we need, in order for the children and us, all people to be wise or know anything, we must have fear of the Lord. And so people can know uh, facts and pass them along, but to understand their full meaning and to see them in proper light and to use them correctly, you have to be instructed from uh, the perspective that God is the God of all things. He's the creator of all things. And so that was hard to think about going to a charter school because you really couldn't specifically do that. Yeah. And I, I understand that I have a godly um, p- families around us that do use charter school, but I am questioning whether or we can really do that properly as um, Christian families. And I know it's going to rub some people the wrong way, but that's just, that's my thought process. And then we thought, okay, we could do private school, but a lot of private schools still operate as a public school that has chapel. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, and so you can they, pray. They paste a Bible lesson on top of everything else that they do. 
but they're not they're not teaching history or science or mathematics or grammar in light of the fact that God exists, that he has spoken, that all truth is God's truth. They're teaching it the same that way he's that been non-Christians. The of history. Yeah, they're teaching yeah. it the same way that non-Christians teach it and then they're adding a Bible a Bible Lesson. story and a verse every day. Right. So that was kind of hard. Then we we latched onto the uh, type of education that would be classical Christian education. We're really interested in it, although we haven't read all different ways of you know education. We were open to homeschool, obviously too. Mm-hmm. And but the problem is, you know, the one that we're interested in is is you know like 40, 45 minutes away, and that's a huge commitment. We wanted to be as local, I think, as we could be, as close yeah. and local to our church, our community, work and um, school, if you're going to go to school, as we possibly could be. Homeschool was an issue with the work element, right? So, you know... And we, some people aren't built for homeschool necessarily. You mean kids? Well, kids like some, or, or some Some parents. kids aren't and some parents aren't. Yeah. I think we we could have done it. I, I think it would I'd have been, loved it, actually. Yeah. Now that I have been doing some of it with Asher, I'm like, this is a blast. But you had said before you didn't want to do it. I could never do it. I was also afraid of not working. Uh I was afraid of being that. I think there is a huge identity issue with me because when I got the job that I had, people esteemed me. Yeah. (laughs) This is a confession. People would say, wow, you know, you're... 20 something and you got a full-time job at a California community college you're teaching chemistry whoa and I liked that a little too much Mm. and so it's going to be interesting for me to move to Georgia and people say like oh what do you do like I stay home with the kids it's really a huge identity shift for me and so the thought of giving up something that I made a lot of money I, people looked up like, oh, wow, a female in chemistry, all of these things. I slowly, actually, this is a huge testimony that God was very kind to take something that really was not bearing the right kind of fruit, I think, in all ways, or bearing the fruit that I could have been bearing. And he slowly changed my heart in that to where actually it's not very painful to not do it Mm. anymore. But four years ago... It would have been really yeah. difficult for me to be like, oh, I quit. I just couldn't imagine myself doing that. So now when I think of telling people, like, I stay home with the kids, it doesn't, it used to bother me. And now I'm like, I stay home with the kids. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. I'm a lot I'm a, more excited I'm a homemaker. I'm a homemaker. I'm, I'm so I, excited. I run our I household. Run I manage our household. <laughs> like... I am proficient in the domestic arts, which I'm not, but I'm yeah. really excited to learn. But you will be. Yeah. yeah. I'm really excited. To, I'm very excited to learn. So just a huge testament that God changes people. With me, it was over the course of even maybe two or th- maybe just two, two and a half years um, that he really changed that aspect of me. And the faithful Christians told me at the beginning of the pandemic, like my friend Heidi, like God's going to use this for the church. You know, God's going to use it. And it's easy to say that, but mm. God really did use it for for the church, for the church body. A lot of clarification. A lot of clarification. I'm so grateful for that time that we really got to think through things and, and shift and pivot. And so anyway, that and then obviously the vaccine mandates. 
Um, in California, California is one of, it might be the only state, it might be one of only two states in which there are no, um, no religious or medical exemptions any longer moving forward for vaccines. And there are some vaccines that... Like childhood vaccines. Childhood vaccines, I'm yeah. sorry, that are absolutely, in my perspective, like, it's pointless. Like, why would you not pointless to get it, but pointless to mandate it? Like, it, it doesn't make any sense to mandate it for you to go to school. Like, why would I need why would that particular vaccine need to be mandated? So parents rights are have been completely attacked and are being stripped away little by actually kind of yeah. quickly. I mean, like there's a as far as I know, it's still in, in committee or maybe it's up for debate. But there is a, a bill in, a, in the California House that would allow children I was the age was it 12 or 14 12 it was 12 so it would allow 12 year olds to consent to vaccines and other treatment and other and other medical treatments without parental consent Mm -hmm. and so these are children who you know they can't drive a car they can't in every other instance you would call them a child yeah they can't watch a rated r movie or anything they some i mean well and this is California, so some of them can't even read, right? They're, the education system and their parents have failed them so much they can barely read at 12 years old. And if you can't read, then you probably can't really think that well either. Mm-hmm. And yet they want these children to be able to decide if they want to take a vaccine or a medical treatment or something and to not tell the parents. It's just utter... Well, it's, it's it's a disordered view of people in terms of of authority, mm-hmm. right? Does the government have that kind of authority, or and do some parents... people would say yes, which is why it's scary, and I yeah. want to get out because I do know people, even some friends who are agnostic or don't submit to Christ and His law, who would say, yeah, the government should step in for that, and that's when I say. That, you know, that's why I'm moving. <laughs> that's why I should leave. So yeah. the vaccine thing, parental rights were are under heavy attack. And I told my parents, you know, my, my parents have had a hard time with us deciding to leave, as have I. But I told them, I don't want them to take my kids. I know about, about parents in Canada who have interposed in between their child getting medical treatment to, trans, to transition to a different gender. And they got thrown in jail. And I have no reason to believe that, you know, this cushy relationship between Newsom and Trudeau, that that's not the direction he wants to go. If mm-hmm. there's going to be money to, to, to get out of it, which there's a lot of money to be uh, to get out of kids transitioning to another gender, lots of money in that. Yeah. If there's money to get out of it, why wouldn't he push it? And so I'm like, no. I'm not going to let you lay a hand on my kids. I'm not going to let... Or my grandkids. Or my grandkids. Or their kids, yeah. And I understand the argument, well, you know, it could get worse some other place. Here, we have no momentum. Literally no momentum. In, in where we're the going recall to, Georgia, election that I previously is a mentioned. Really, is yeah. a really obvious example. We do have momentum in other places. We can join forces in other places and actually flip things, right? Um but in California, based on how huge it is, its population, et cetera, we just didn't think that was where our fight needed to go. Yeah. And I asked you, why Georgia? And what did you tell me? What did I tell you? 
<laughs> I remember you said that's the door got opened. So you gave okay. you yeah. gave the recruiter. I, you're like, I agree these are that. the areas of of the United States that we'd be open to living in, and it's it fell on Georgia. There was a lot of prayer, a lot of talking to other people to gain wisdom, a lot of um, inquiring, a lot of reading, a lot of listening. And you said, that's the door that God opened. Yeah. And he didn't open just that door, right? So I'm going to, I want to say that you contacted a classical Christian school that was opening in the fall, met the founder of the classical Christian school, contacted them. We went over to their house for dinner. Um, when we visited Georgia. When we visited Georgia. I had talked to hospitable. multiple pastors. Well, let me tell about this yeah, one though. Okay. So we were looking for a classical Christian school. It just happens. It's opening like 20 minutes away or 19 minutes away from where we're living. She has been so instrumental in going to houses that we have been um, looking yeah. at to buy. A huge encourage, encouragement to me. I prayed for a friend. She told me she'd be my friend. And then also said, hey, I've been praying for a science teacher to come and teach a couple hours, a you know, couple days a week or whatever. And the, the, the value is that you would be able to bring your kids as well. Huge. That is huge. I mean, that like, yeah. that fits so perfectly into what we thought what we God, the, the values that we had. Yeah. And then um, I'll tell about the, the, you talked to the churches, right? And mm-hmm. there was a church that you decided we were going to visit when we were there. The day before, maybe two days before, I was just crying all day because it was so hard for me to envision moving from a place that I have a wonderful church family. My family's nearby. I, you know, the weather, obviously, this is where I'm from. You know, I'm from California. I have, there's so much connection between me and California. It's part of who I am, uh, where I was raised, what I learned, all the sights and the sounds and the smells. And that was heartbreaking to me to think about leaving. And I don't transition well anyway. And so I prayed, God, please, I know that, uh, that you don't owe me this, but just like Gideon, can I put a fleece out? You know, can you give me something? Can you give me... Uh, an obvious sign. Can you bring me a friend? I need a friend. And because the Lord's gracious, he did that. He answered in like two days. We went to a church and met the pastor and he said, oh, my wife um, is from Bakersfield, just like you. And I said, oh, what's her name? And he told me her maiden name. And it just so happens that we're family friends. And she called me and said, I'll be your friend and has been so, so you know, such a yeah. big support. So in this Danae process prayed too. and asked God for a friend. And, and she already two has friends. two, and we haven't even <laughs> moved there yet. Yeah. Yes, and they also, uh, a prayer was that people would be there to help us unload. And she had texted me before, and I did not tell her this prayer. She said, we want to know when you're coming because we want people there to help you unload and yeah. watch your kids. And So I what, I, what I had said is, because I was trying to... I, if I say if if we're gonna move, I want to move well, and I want to know that we're moving to a place because we have a great church here, great friendships. Like I'm not gonna take us somewhere where we're gonna go rogue in our spiritual lives, right? Without being under the authority of a local church of elders, and so I want to know that where we're going, we're gonna be able to join right away with a good church family. And my goal was to make phone calls and try to build some relationships so that when we arrive with the moving truck, there's already a church family that knows a little bit about us, is excited about the prospect of us coming and joining them, partnering with them in the same direction they're already going and that they want to, you know, basically help us unload our moving truck. So that was one of my goals in determining, Hey, is this, 
because I when when I talked to the recruiter and he found me this position, they were hiring or I could have worked at any of their three offices in Georgia. And so it's like, well, how do we choose whether to live in this area? You automatically thought Athens. Yeah. And then we waffled and we went to another place and then we're oh No, we didn't waffle. I did. You always thought Athens. Uh Uh-huh. Just so you know, you knew you knew from the beginning. Well, that's what I I thought from the beginning and then And you were right. And I was Okay. Thank <laughs> I just, you. I just want to yeah. say that. Yeah. So, so yeah. And uh, then we got way more money on our house than we thought. I mean, it just it was just like yeah. everything the Lord just paved because I prayed against it. I don't know if I told you that. But I prayed, I said, Lord, don't let us move. Don't let us move. Please sabotage this in some way. Please stop it. Let put throw some boulders down. Like I don't even When care. did you stop praying that? Uh um, before we took the trip? No. Or while we were... It was after. After you were still praying it after we came back from that trip? Well, maybe we were like on our way. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, before you finally made your decision. So I prayed it for that long. And then once you made wow. your decision, I said... I no, went, I didn't know I that. I, I, I won't. I won't pray that anymore. So then, yeah, now we're in the last yeah. few weeks of being here until we move. We'll probably do an episode of moving, showing our sights and... And sounds of, of moving three children across country. Yeah, so I, I want to add, too. So we talked about... We need to clo- close yeah, soon, we, but go ahead. We talked about faith as a reason for moving. We talked about politics. We didn't talk so much about culture, although it's kind of related to what we said. So in terms of culture, where you live, everywhere you live has a culture. Um, in our area, we're a little bit more rural but we're still heavily influenced by the Cal- the progressive California culture of Los mm. Angeles and San Francisco. Uh, there are other places. And, and when you live in a place and there is a culture, it's hard to understand how it's in, uh, affecting your life and your what thinking. What the culture is. What is the culture? Because you're just there. So when you leave and live somewhere else, you recognize that that place has a culture, but where you live, it's like a fish doesn't really know that they're in water. Mm-hmm. Because it's just where they are. And so I have to imagine in many ways, that's part of the reason why there's racial tension because race is often related with people's culture and upbringing. And when your culture isn't the exact same as the culture of everywhere around you, there's bound to be conflicts in terms of values and behaviors. People looking at you and the way you do things, the way you dress, the way you talk. Maybe you speak the same language, but if your culture isn't exactly the same, you don't share the same values, then there's conflict there. And so I, I can see that. Um, but you, when you start to realize that, oh yeah, I do have a culture. Um, I live in a culture and that's impacting me, but I want to have a Christian culture, mm. right? I want to have, I have a Christian faith. I want to have Christian thinking and I want to have and build a Christian culture Um yeah, and so that's a big, that's one other reason. And then the last reason, and this is also pandemic related. I mean, it really revealed uh, what's going on economically. So if you think about, you've heard stuff about supply chains and fuel shortages and inflation and things like that. So what happens if the semi-trucks stop coming through our area, right? Can we produce all of the food and goods that we need to survive for our city, for our county? And the answer is an obvious no. 
And so we realized on a global scale that with supply chains, our economy is kind of just right on this razor's edge where if there's disruptions, things start to fall apart. So one example is the way they're talking about these computer chips. Um, there were shortages in, in terms of getting stuff out of China and into Taiwan as far as raw materials, and they are not making as many computer chips. It's all directed or uh, disrupted because of the pandemic. And now, you know, there's been shortages of cars and electronics, things that are further down the line that depend on these microchips. And so think about that in terms of your food and what it takes to live, right? If, the, if that's disrupted, how do you get meat? How do you get vegetables? And I've noticed at our grocery store, they did a big remodel and I am, I'm almost positive they eliminated a full row from the store. It feels like there's more space between the aisles mm -hmm. than there was before. And then if I look at the shelves, I never remember a time looking at shelves where it wasn't like completely full all the way to the back on 95% of all the shelves. And now I look and it's very normal to see items, multiple items within a couple feet of each other on a shelf empty. And so I'm thinking about, well, geographically, where can we live in a place where we can start to build a resilient household and supply some of our own needs? I'm not talking about a radical, independent, little house on the prairie homestead kind of thing where we only go into town to buy a bag of sugar and a couple peppermint sticks and some, you know, some fabric or something like, oh, you're going to, you're going to start to spin cloth. We're going to grow cotton on our property and you're going to make all our, like, I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about, oh, can we have enough land to have a really good sized garden, some chickens? I like, I like goat, goat's milk, goat cheese. I like the taste of it. She doesn't. So we may not get goats. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But <laughs> You know, something, something like that. And that's something that Christians should really be thinking about. Um, number one, what it says in the New Testament that if anyone doesn't provide for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever, right? So God has called us to provide for those near to us, for our families. And part of that is the economic and financial provision. And so if we live, we, we have to recognize that we live in an economy that has certain constraints, but within those constraints, if you can afford to have a little bit more land, hard to do in California, mm -hmm. and have the time to tend a garden to, to, to look after. Hard to do when you're both working. Hard to do when you're both working, mm -hmm. exactly. So hence one of the other reasons uh, for considering to move. And then I feel like there was one other thing that I wanted to say, uh, but it escapes me at the moment. So, yeah, just to sort of summarize reasons for moving, there's political realities in Cal... Oh, this, on the, on the political side, this was something I wanted to mention because people have told us from the Christian side, like, California is a mission field. It needs Christians. It needs, the, it needs people preaching the gospel. And that's true. But it's also true that the gospel has come to California. There are thousands of churches in the state, people who are faithfully preaching the gospel, and the people who govern us have rejected it. So it's not that they haven't heard the gospel. We're not or an that unreached people yeah, this group. Yeah, is, this is not an unreached people group. And so the, the strategy for how to reach California 
is is different. It doesn't have the same imperative as going to a place where Christ has never been named. So um, when when Jesus sent out his disciples and said, if they if this town doesn't listen to you or doesn't receive you, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to shake the dust off their feet and go to the next town. Right. And so, and one of the Bible stories that has helped me process through it is thinking about the the Hebrew people who lived in Egypt. And so they, they entered Egypt as sort of as heroes and saviors because God revealed to Joseph the famine that was about to come. Joseph rose to a high position, second in command only to Pharaoh, and God blessed the Egyptian people because they looked after his covenant people. Fast forward a few hundred years and God's covenant people were abused, enslaved, and oppressed, including killing their male children, right? So a level of of abuse and oppression that has been experienced by few people groups in the history of the world. And what did God do? God didn't tell his people who were being oppressed and abused by the governing authorities to stay there and be a light to the Egyptians. He cursed the Egyptians. He judged them for their sin and wickedness. He sent plagues and gave them a chance to repent and relent, but they didn't. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn of all of the Egyptians and their livestock. And plagues see homosexuality running rampant. I mean, that's a plague. Yeah. The plagues have come. We have drought in California. We have fires. If you look at the, the curses, the curses to the land that God promised if his covenant people forsook him when they entered the promised land, those are the same things that are happening throughout the United States broadly and more specifically in California. Now, I just want to clarify something. I'm not saying that California is the only place that props up homosexual behavior, transgenderism, etc. But you are, if you work for the state, you are precluded from being against it. And that's what I figured out being a public school employee when I would say anything in defense of the Christian faith that was against this paradigm that all sexualities were acceptable, all ways of expressing oneself mm-hmm. sexually was acceptable and should be heralded and esteemed and um, honored. If you said anything against that, you were told your view is not accepted here and you could you can't even really be a part of hiring committees, the hiring process, if you verbalize that. So how do you want to change, right? How do you want to change California when the laws are against you and it precludes you from doing anything about it? Yeah. Right? So you're like, well, I want to hire more employees, you know, in the public sphere that are Christian. Okay, you if you want an outspoken Christian of, of someone that is upholding a biblical ethic, they and, and you say that during They're the They're unhirable. You will not be hired and yeah. you won't be on a hiring committee. So that's why, or, you know, on the committee Another to hire anyone. Class, so yeah. anyway, that was, that was part of the problem where I was like, oh, when I talked to the president of our school and he's, and I said, could I be on the diversity, equity, and inclusion committee? And he said, yeah, that would be an uphill battle mm-hmm. because he said, not all perspectives are valid if they are, because essentially they're prejudice. Yeah. They're exclusionary or exclusive. Yeah. Your position the conser- any conservative position, it was specifically talking about Christianity, but he said, yeah, we have free speech. You technically can say what you want. 
opinions are valid, but not biases. And so he labeled my position as, as yeah, I'm biased, but prejudice. He, he labeled it as a prejudice mm-hmm. that wasn't acceptable at the college. And that's when, whenever, whenever I started speaking at the, the uh, board meetings, I realized that my positions, no matter what they were, yeah. were not welcome and were being actively opposed. Mm-hmm. And so what did God do to, for his people? So he judged the Egyptians mm-hmm. and then he pulled his, he pulled his people out. Right, so he told him to out. leave. So, <laughs> right, you know, I mean God, that's what we're doing. That's God, what we're saying. Yeah, when God called Abram to follow him, he said, "Leave the leave the household, the land of your of your father and your mother, and go to a place that I'm going to tell you." So he didn't even tell him where he was going. And God has been gracious enough to direct us to where we actually know where we're going. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that God removed His people from Egypt in Egypt in the Exodus and then led them into a promised land. There's not an exact parallel in every respect, but I believe that God is calling and moving Christians geographically within the United States. Um, The pandemic has helped reveal things. It's revealed people who are really serious about pursuing all of Christ for all of life and applying that in the education of their children, applying that to the households they're building, applying that to the way they vote, to even running for political office themselves. And God is calling people, calling people like us, calling people like you who are listening to really question, where do you live? Why do you live there? If you're going to stay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to fight, to fight, right? To not, not fight in the sense of, of, uh, physical tearing violence, down. tearing down, but how are you going to build up and establish justice and godliness, truth and righteousness in, in accordance with, in God's accordance law. with God's law in this place, or, Hey, come, come to Georgia, live with us. You know, we'll welcome you. We can definitely, we're going to build, that. yeah, we're going to build something and it may not be us. It may not be our children, but our grandchildren, our great grandchildren, uh, we will be continuing to establish God's kingdom and manifesting the rule and reign of Christ in Georgia. Not for our glory, not because we're going to have way better lives there. Like if we wanted a great life, we should have stayed here, make a ton of money. The weather's great. It's beautiful. We have friendships already. Like, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of our lives, we should have stayed, but we're not. We're thinking, trying to think biblically. We're thinking long-term. We're thinking for our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. Where do we want to live that is going to give us the best chance to serve God, to obey Him, to love others, and to build culture, society, faith that is going to multiply, prosper, and yeah, to, to fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion in the way that God has called us mm-hmm. to do. So that's our, our challenge to you. We've walked through most of the reasons why we're leaving. Um, if you've never thought about, well, would I send my kids to public school or not? If you've never thought about, why do I live here? Would I stay or not? Well, I stay here because my family's here. Well, why don't you broach the topic with your family? Like maybe you all move together. 
we heard about a church. And we're not promising that that will go well. Yeah, we heard about a church <laughs> where basically the entire local church body in California pulled up stakes and all moved to the same town in Texas. Right? They all moved together. Which is based. That's awesome. That is yeah. the definition <laughs> of based. That was a long conversation. Mm -hmm. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Until we meet again, you can wave bye. Bye. <laughs>